Good morning. My name is Spencer Brose. I'm the lead pastor here at St. Stephen's United Methodist Church. And what a joy and blessing to be with you this morning as we explore God's word, as we gather in the midst of worship, giving thanks to our God. As we approach our national holiday of Thanksgiving, we again turn to a passage that helps us to appreciate the idea of thanksgiving, of gratitude, from the perspective of our faith. So we turn to the letter to the Philippians, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 13. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me, Indeed, you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity to show it. Not that I am referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of, plenty, of having plenty, and of being in need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Have you ever considered what it must have been like to be one of the churches of Paul and receive one of his letters? Have you ever thought about that? Most of Paul's letters contain not just teaching, a lot of correcting of behavior, a lot of rebuking, reproving. He calls people out by name. In most letters, except for this one. Now, there are a couple people that get named, but it's not quite as harsh as he might do in other letters. This letter to the church in Philippi is, has such a significantly more positive tone to it than his other letters that some have called this a love letter from Paul to the church in Philippi. We don't know the nature of it, why it has such a more positive uh, tone for this church. It was the first church that he established in Eastern Europe after he left um, uh, the Middle East in what we call Palestine now. Maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe it has something to do with the connection he had with the people there. We don't really know, but it has a, uh, a distinctly more positive tone to it than most of the other letters 
that Paul wrote to churches that he helped to establish and then continued to help lead them and guide them. This passage we read today contains some of the most beloved verses we read, but on also some of the most mis- misquoted ones as well, or maybe perhaps misused. So we're going to explore today's passage and, and see what we can glean from it, from Paul's writings to this church that he loves so much and wrote about joy and gratitude, about thanksgiving. Just want to take a step back for a moment and just kind of look at the letter as a whole, just a little bit more. This entire letter has is broken up differently than Paul's other letters. The other letters tend to follow a central theme. He touches on other things, but there's a central theme going throughout it, and it's and it's progressive. This letter is a is a bunch of uh, you might call them short stories or vignettes connected to still a central theme, but they touch on it in different ways. There's a central message, and it's found in chapter 2, that even the verses preceding it still talk, uh, are still in conversation with these central verses in a poem. Uh, in, it reads as a poem in Greek. It doesn't read as a poem in English. Um, but this, that he wrote to the church. So this is Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to begin at verse 5, but the poem itself starts at verse 6. Let the same mind be in you that it was in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness and being found in appearance as a human. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that the name given to Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the central theme. It's Paul's central message for the most part. Jesus' life suffering, death, resurrection, and exaltation, where he sits at God's right hand. That's the central message of his teaching altogether. So all these stories that are a part of this rather small book, as we consider a book within the Bible, the larger collection, all touch on themes and even bar, uh, use words that are similar so that this continues to echo in our minds. And Paul writes such positive, encouraging words while sitting in prison. And this is a particularly difficult imprisonment for whatever reason. We know because of some of the other things he writes. Some of the times he was jailed, it was more like house arrest. And people could come and go um, pretty much as they wanted. But there was a guard there to keep them Uh, keep him from leaving, or at least check on from time to time. It was kind of a loose incarceration, I suppose. But this one was pretty tough. Yet he writes such beautiful, uplifting words to this church that he seems to have a close connection with. So let's walk through the text for today. Beginning at verse 4, 
Rejoice in the Lord always. And in case you didn't hear me say it the first time, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. I'm so glad you asked, folks. At when, we, when you said, the peace of Christ be with you. you. I'm so glad you did that again. That's just what Paul's doing. Just to make sure you got it and that I'm hearing you, even though we're not in the same space. Make sure you hear me. Rejoice. Again, sitting in prison, writing these things. What's really neat when you get in, and I think it's neat because I'm going to do my Bible word nerd thing again. When you look at the Greek of the word joy, it's Cairo, kind of like Egypt, you know, the city in Egypt. The first two letters of Christ in Greek are Chi and Rho. I don't know if that's coincidence. I don't know if that's anything, but I like it. Because if you see it, you see the image sometimes. It looks like a P drawn down the middle of an X. That's that chi and that row together as a symbol to, uh, for Christ, as an emblem of who Jesus is. Christ himself is our joy. That's central to this. Now, I don't know if I'm putting words in Paul's mouth or not. Like I said, I think it's neat. So I thought I'd share it. And then as Paul is exploring this uh, connection with joy, he urges us to be gentle and non-anxious, making our requests known to God in prayer and thanksgiving and supplication. The very first section of this seems to be focused on anxiousness. The anxiousness of the people for whatever reason, whether they were anxious for him or anxious of their situation, but anxiousness. Anxiety, uh, word that comes, of course, from anxiousness, has been defined as a physiological and psychological response that occurs when our mind and our body encounter a stressful, dangerous, or even just an unfamiliar situation. It's part of our God-given responses to, to uh, put us in a state of alert. And it's meant to be a momentary state, but we as humans do take something that's good and we, you know, we want more of it, or not necessarily more, we want more of it, but we do more with it and it ceases to be a momentary state and it becomes this state of being that's not good for us. And as I talk about this, I recognize there's indeed a need for seeking professional help when dealing with anxiety and anxiety disorder. It can be debilitating, paralyzing, and requires treatment. But Paul's talking to us living in this state of anxiousness. Some of, some of you know people who are professional worriers. You may be in the room, I don't know. My grandmother was worried if she didn't have something to worry about. You know what I'm talking about, right? There's, I mean, she lived in a conscious state of anxiousness, I think. She finished any, any, any phrase or talk of a plan with if I'm still living. Oops, sorry. Always, always. I thought she was dying the first time, I, I mean, from my earliest childhood. 
and she lived to be almost 100. So if that's a description of anxiety, what's, what's the opposite side of anxiety? And Paul touches on it, but our science uh, teaches us something along the same lines. Um, from Psychology Today, that's not a professional publication. It's more for the lay person of psychology, but it helps me to, as a reference sometimes when I'm uh, considering things. And they explored the opposite of, of anxiety, and if we define it differently about different expressions of anxiety, it might, uh, we might have a, a synonym that, or the opposite might be happy-go-lucky or carefree if we're looking at it as somebody who's uptight and worried all the time, or um, if, if your anxiety makes you to be driven and, and you got to get all these things done, maybe the opposite would be to be more pa- uh, passive or nonchalant about things. But as the article, cont- and there are others, but as the article continues, while these might be appropriate when considering the literary use of the word anxiety, it doesn't really get to the core of what anxiety is doing within our within our minds and our bodies. The author of the article is Dr. Leon Seltzer, and he turns to previous work done by a life coach, Renee Jane. In her article, um, What is the Opposite of Anxiety? His article is What is the Opposite of Anxiety and What We Can Do About It? Just, I didn't give that reference before. But she discovered that she was able to overcome her anxiety with confidence, specifically self-confidence. Then Seltzer takes that train of thought further and and turns it to the word trust, although he turns it to, the, to ourselves, turning to trusting ourselves. But we have all been in situations where we've had anxiety that it didn't matter how much I trusted myself, I had no means of controlling anything about what was going on. But Paul speaks to that, too. Do not be anxious about, an, about anything But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, or the way I like to say it, it doesn't make sense, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we can't trust ourselves, we can trust God, Paul is saying. Remember, sitting in prison. Not a good time. Not even sure if he's going to survive this time in prison. And we don't know if this was his imprisonment before his execution or not. But Paul is saying, trust God. And that's where we start, overcoming our everyday anxiousness. Then Paul moves, uh, and that's that's verses 4 through 7. In verses 4 through 8, he goes in to reflect on certain attributes. This is a passage that I often, excuse me, that I often turn to uh, during a funeral service as we're preparing for folks to share about memories of, of the loved one who has passed. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, pleasing, commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. As we're recalling the life of that person, 
Paul is doing that in, in connection to himself. He's also doing it shortly after the one time he does call out a couple people in the church in, in Philippi, urging them to play nice, basically, and the people around them to help them. And rather than focus on the bad things, let's focus on these things. Whatever is true. Now, I did play a little Bible word nerd with this part, too. But whatever is true or real or unconcealed, I love that as, as a way of understanding what Paul is saying. Whatever, just It's about uh, being a person of, uh, of vulnerability, integrity, and um, honesty. Remember, whatever is honorable, revered, august, it's one of the ways, uh, one of the words that gets translated into holy sometimes, but not the typical word. Whatever is just, whatever is lawful, whatever is right, whatever is balanced. We think of the, the image of Lady Justice with the scales that are balanced. That's where this comes from. Whatever is pure. Now, this is the word we typically translate as holy, upright, set apart, other than whatever is pleasing or dear, beloved, kindly, affectioned, agreeable. It's, this, it's the root word for phileo, which is a, a, a sibling's love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. With the prefix of pros, which is to go toward or leading with. And I say all that so that I can say this. It's the idea of someone who leads with brotherly or sisterly love. That's what somebody who is pleasing in, this, in Paul's list here. Someone who leads with sibling love. Someone who is commendable, fair-sounding, uh, auspicious. If there's any excellence, goodness or kind, any kind, of any kind or praise, and then worthy of praise. He's doubling down on all these praise, worthiness, words that he has at his discretion to use. And he says, think about these things. But it's not just a casual thought passing. It's the word that you would use to calculate things. I, the way I, 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 I helps me to understand it is take inventory of these things. Really sit down and think about and ponder these things of of the people around us that point us to Christ, to God in Christ, reflecting on those things so that we might live them and then reflect them back to the world. Paul's saying this is the way to live a life that is filled with this type of joy. Not only are we focused on these positives of other people, but then we start to make them a part of ourselves. This is the holy life that Paul is calling us to live. And as we lean more on Christ, as we let go of our own will and say, your will be done, these are the types of things that the Spirit makes possible within us to live as faithful followers. And then in the last few verses, he talks about this contented life. And I have, I have said multiple times, and I'll say again just to remind us, He's in prison, and this is not the nice house arrest with an ankle bracelet, and you've got your TV and your movies and your refrigerator. He didn't have any of those things, I know, but just for as, as if. And he says, again, rejoice in the Lord. I rejoice greatly 
in the Lord that now at last you have revived your concern in me. He turns to uh, thanking them. They have sent somebody to take stuff to him. This guy got sick and almost died while he was there to, to help, to give some aid to Paul. That's how we know the conditions under which he was experiencing his imprisonment. And they sent somebody, and, he, and it made him feel appreciated. And he's sharing that. But, he's, but he goes on to say, um, but not that I'm referring to being in need. It wasn't that. And then he goes on to explain why he doesn't have need. For I have learned to be content with whatever I have, whether it's little or plenty, in any and all circumstances, the secret of, not of being well-fed, of how do I, am I well-fed when there's not food around? It's how I exist as if I am well, how do I exist? How do I endure? How do I even thrive? Because Paul is still thriving when I am well-fed or when I am starving, literally. How do, I, how do I learn to endure? How do I learn to thrive in the midst of having plenty or of having little? I do it with, with Christ who gives me strength. Now that's the verse that gets misused oftentimes. I can hit my personal best lifting because Christ can give me strength to, this is not, this is not how, I, how, I, how I prosper. This is about how I endure, how I find contentment in life because Jesus. Because Jesus, and that's it. He finds his joy in Jesus. He gives thanks for Jesus. He has centered his life around the message of the life, suffering, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Christ, the one who died and yet rose again and still lives at God's right hand. That's where he finds his joy and it turns into gratitude, or he finds his gratitude that turns into this joy and peace that doesn't make sense. Finding contentment in any circumstance. And these things that Paul are expressing uh, to us, that is, he is inviting us to be a part of our lives, just as he's exhorting them to the people in Philippi, these continue to be towards us as well. These aren't just, okay, if you just work hard enough at this uh, Jesus life thing, you'll live into it. It'll work, it'll happen. You just gotta try harder. This is not that. This is a letting go. This isn't a holding on harder. This is a letting go. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus even says that to God the night before his crucifixion. Not my will, but yours be done. And the more we allow God's will to work within our lives, the more these attributes become a part of who we are. And when we take them all together, a life well lived leads to joy in the Lord. And joy in the Lord leads to a life well lived. It's a circular way of being. Centered upon trusting God in all things, in all times, all places, all circumstances, in every situation. So that we can be freed from anxiousness and discontentedness. Free to live in joy through gratitude for our life in Christ. 
And as we reflect on this message, as we reflect on the letter as a whole, remembering that it wasn't just written to a group of individuals, it was written to the group as well. We take these things individually, but taken collectively also. That we're meant to experience this joy and gratitude in the midst of a community. Because to live in this way, to live it towards this way of being, we can't do on our own. We need each other to do it. And that when there are times when we are not find, we won't find the joy in the Lord, and it's certainly not our strength, we need others' joy and others' strength to assist us, not to, not to replace ours, just to assist us till we can get to that place where we can recognize it for ourselves. There is nothing, uh, I don't think there's anything better in church when we're rejoicing together, rejoicing in the love of God through Jesus Christ in the presence of the Holy Spirit. There's just something about reaching out towards God's joy together and enjoying him as one people. And, and even better, when we sing. Um, I've heard it said that when we sing, we pray twice. Even if we only sing it one time. Sing it with our, uh, we pray with our hearts and with our mouths. But that's what the community of Christ is called to be. Paul is talking to a community of faith. They're separated geographically, but they're together spiritually. They're connected through God's spirit. The other places we talk about worshiping in spirit and truth. It's why whether we're worshiping virtually or in the building together, we are still connected as one body of Christ. And Paul calls us to live that way, a life of gratitude, a life of gratitude that fills us like that balloon with joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gifts that you give us. But more than that, thank us. Thank you for being you. For from your goodness and your greatness, pour forth every good blessing. Simply because of who you are. When we feel anxious or discontent, may we turn to you. May we turn to others who seek to follow you. And may we be those who help one another through those times of difficulty that they too might find once again their joy in the Lord. Amen.